Welcome to season four of The Empty Chair, a podcast from Penn South Africa. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn SA. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from the symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. And at the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with poet and human rights lawyer Arnon Nampa. Arnon faces a dozen les majeste charges amounting to a potential sentence of 180 years imprisonment in Thailand. These charges over his protests in 2020, advocating for political reform around the monarchy's power in Thailand. In February, Arnon was released from jail and granted temporary bail on condition that he avoid and engaging in any activities that, and I quote, insult the monarchy. Penn South Africa joins Penn International in its call for all charges against Arnon to be dropped immediately. In this episode, Associate Professor Sakambuzo Mgadi interviews Associate Professor Aretha Perry. They assess the legacy of Ralph Ellison's astonishing, error-defining novel, Invisible Man, on the 70th anniversary of its publication. Sikambuzo Mgadi is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Johannesburg. His teaching and research interests are in South African drama, Anglophone African fiction, South African film, as well as British and American literature. The character is that type who is slippery, who says at the beginning of the novel, you know, I live at the border and that is why no one can find me or see me. But at the same time, invoking blackness, invoking an identity and protesting in some ways against the invisibility of blackness of his black skin. Aretha Perry is an academic in the Department of Literary Studies and English at Rhodes University. Her research focuses on African-American, American and contemporary diasporic African literature, examining transnational and transatlantic considerations of identity and subjectivity. She's held numerous research fellowships in South Africa, the UK and the USA. She's recently been awarded the Klug Fellowship at the Library of Congress in Washington to undertake a research project entitled Ellison and South Africa. That is fundamentally what Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is about. It is a call to recognizing the intricacies, the murkiness of what it means to be human. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to episode three of season four of Penn SA's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm Skumbuzo Mgadi, and I'm delighted to be in conversation with Aretha Peary about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Thank you, Aretha, for coming to this discussion of the chapter that you published. Thank you very much for the invitation, Skumbuzo. Yes, thank you. Now, the book is entitled Global Ralph Ellison, Aesthetics and Politics Beyond U.S. Borders. And of course, your article looks at the global reach 
of Ellison's 1952 novel, Invisible Man, both from the point of view of its reception within America and beyond the borders of America. Could you put us in the picture regarding what your sense of the global reach of this novel is? Well, I was interested to, to find out because this emanates from a conference to which I was invited, and this was at Oxford, the Ralph Ellison Symposium. And the idea was to get a sense, precisely as you're saying, of his reach. And I was very interested to find out that his reach is predominantly European and America itself. And I was very interested for someone like myself who teaches Ralph Ellison. I get the sense that his reach is more extensive than what is said or proposed. Obviously, Obviously, my thinking then was that there wasn't enough research out there with regard to just how extensive his reach was. Hence, my chapter or my contribution to the book itself. Now, from the point of view of teaching the novel, what particular questions would you say have been most productive for you, besides those that others have asked about this novel, which we are going to get to in a little while? Well, interestingly, I started teaching the text during the Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall movement. The idea had been to teach it prior to that, but due to the turbulent nature of the particular movement, it wasn't possible to teach because classes were disrupted, etc., etc. But it is interesting that I taught Ellison's novel at quite a turbulent time where the questions of race generally and blackness more specifically were at their fore in terms of gauging the nation's temperature. So I guess for me, it wasn't so much myself that I was interested so much as the students. I was really interested to know what a text like Ralph Ellison's did in this particular moment and how it is the students responded to them. And understandably, the responses were very interesting, very diverse. And I think, for me, spoke to the ambivalent reception he has historically had in a South African context. But definitely the sense that this is a text that resonates even today with South African students. The sense of a discussion that continues and has not yet been resolved, and that being a discussion on race. And indeed, you speak about the timeliness of this novel in South Africa, especially at a time in 2015 and 2016 when Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall movements were demanding what you call visibility by institutions, but also by the epistemologies that seemed to have forgotten them. Could you elaborate on this idea of its timeliness in particular in formerly white institutions. Well, I think what I found interesting in their responses was the complexity of the responses that came back. So where there's very much a sense of decolonizing the curriculum, which was the narrative that was pushing the roads must fall and fees must fall, there was also a concerted effort to try and make sense of what it meant to be black and the black place within this particular narrative, the decolonial narrative. Because one of the questions that would, I assume, be quite 
important would be, well, why teach an African-American text in a South African context? This is not to say that the text isn't relevant and we can't make cross-references, but why not, if we are going to be conscious about decoloniality, um, actually focus on particularly African texts? Why go all the way to America? So that in itself was interesting in terms of trying to reconcile the complexity of blackness, that these students in a South African context, majority of whom have never been to America, they learn about America. This would be their first encounter because this would be an honors level course. It's their first in-depth encounter with America and American race relations. The ways in which the text resonates across borders in extremely complicated ways. Because one of the things you find is the eponymous character himself struggles to identify with different political groupings. And then at the end of the novel retreats into a hole in the ground, which is suggestive of precisely the complications that are involved in trying to make sense of one's subjective standing in society, as it were. Thank you. And you say in that connection in your chapter that Ellison's critical and artistic problematization of identity politics broadly understood, goes some way towards explaining his enduringly ambiguous and complicated status in the South African national and literary consciousness in particular. You have spoken at some length about the national consciousness of South African writing. What would you say is the literary consciousness in which Ellison's novel is most readily influential or relevant? When I look at South African literature and also African-American literature, you have what is described as protest writing or protest novels. And it's evident that in the spectrum of Ralph Ellison's career, I mean, he actually started writing and his text was published post-World War II. He's writing at a point at which their examinations of civil rights movements. And at this point, the kinds of literature that is coming out of African America is described as protest literature. The most famous example being Richard Wright's Native Son. Across continents in South Africa, this is also what's happening. And actually across the African continent, you have what is described as protest literature. I'm not sure of the efficacy of the phrase protest literature or the complete efficacy of protest literature. I think there was something fundamentally more complex going on there. But Ellison seemed to resist being grouped within the notion of protest literature. And if anything, had tried to position himself as a more sophisticated, intellectual connoisseur of words, all about modernist art, etc., etc. And I think this, for me, I can't run away from my own influence and input. I think for me, this was the interesting thing of bringing to my students a text by a writer who seemed to disaffiliate himself with a particular kind of writing, which he himself looked down at, but also at the moment speaks to the ways in which African and South African writers are also themselves trying to break out of these strict categories. If you think of African diasporic literature, the most famous thing in my mind is Afropolitan yes. literature. And yes. <laughs> you know, the ways in which the writers who are labeled Afropolitan themselves seem to push against that label. I'm not Afropolitan. I am a writer. And this is what Ellison's all about. And you also speak about how that particular character of his work is in fact in a strange paradox what 
that makes his work enduring. This idea that he's detached, but in his detachment, he's very much involved in the global coherence of identitarian discourse, even if he expresses a kind of disaffection for it, but he is very much present in it by being absent from it. Absolutely. And it's the duty or responsibility of the reader, in this case the student, to try and flesh that out from the text itself. Yes. And so you also situate him in that sense in global movements of cultural capital. You speak about Ellison's novel as part of post-war America. In many ways, it reflected when it was published the temper of a changing global political climate. It resonated, for example, as you say, with civil rights movements, with black nationalist politics, with global importance, the global interest in Western imperialism and Africa's liberation and pan-Africanist decolonization movements. And this is a novel that appears on the surface to address itself to the existential crisis of a single character. And I'm interested in how when you also raise that question of existentialism, which I would like to probe further, how is a novel that appears to be about the existential predicament of a single character have such uh, resonances with global issues? I think for me that that is the profoundly most interesting thing about Ellison's text, is that he's in effect articulating the human condition, where it is convenient and in some quarters ideal to categorize literature, what he's pushing away from is actually what he's striving for is what it means to be human. And I think this is what happens in the text. I mean, it's a very difficult text for the students to read. I myself, when I read it again and again, still feel rather discombobulated. I can't get the sense of what I'm meant to take out of this. If there is a lesson to be garnered from this, I think that would be my hope that that is the lesson, that even in particular moments where particular discourses are used, we need to reflect very critically on what it means to be human. And I think Ellison strives towards that. And just to pick up, Sikumbuz, on what you said about cultural capital, it's actually interesting that Ellison is rewarded and awarded the National Book Award on the basis of one text, nothing else. There must be something very interesting about this text. So when you use the word cultural capital, my question becomes, what precisely is the cultural capital that people are resonating with when they read this text? Yes, 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 I agree. And my sense, of course, is precisely that, you know, there is this accumulated cultural capital around this novel, but it is almost impossible to identify what it is, except to say that it is enigmatic. And that is precisely why it drives so much of that capital and accumulates further cultural capital around it. The character is that type who is slippery, who says at the beginning of the novel, you know, I live at the border and that is why no one can find me or see me. But at the same time, invoking blackness, uh, invoking an identity and protesting in some ways against the invisibility of blackness of his black skin. 
That is perhaps the tension that one finds in Ellison's novel, this gesture towards black politics and this detachment from it at the same time. And that's what I suppose this article works out in three ways, by situating the novel in its post-war context, by looking at the critical capital that has accumulated around it, but also by looking at the teaching capital that has accumulated around this text. And I would like to move quickly to the critical capital in the section of your chapter entitled Ellison's Complex Relationship to Black Politics. And I want to zoom in on Kositsile's criticism of the novel as a shadow, not an act. Obviously, drawing from the title of Ellison's own collection of essays, Shadow and Acts. What do you make of that criticism? And I know that you address that very extensively in your chapter, but I just want you to return to that criticism of the 1960s in particular. I think Khogitile's um, response to Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man in particular, is significant in the sense that he is speaking to a particular moment in a particular context where the urgency of the moment apartheid South Africa called for more dramatic responses. And this is something, again, Ellison refused to be involved in. I mean, in the chapter, I speak about the ways in which he himself was massaged and coerced to be involved in the anti-apartheid movement and refused to be involved. There's something to be said. I mean, I think of someone I also work on, Toni Morrison, who talks about her protest is in the literature. And if you're sophisticated and brave enough a reader, you will see the protest emanate from the literature. It doesn't have to be spelled out in didactic words. It is what it is. You see this unfolding. And I suspect for Ellison, it was enough for him to write a book that dealt with the complexities that were being faced across the globe. But yes, there seem to be camps whether you're pro-Ellison or not. And it's clear that in his thinking, here was an artist who was hiding behind complicated and sophisticated words where there was the opportunity to speak more overtly about the injustices that were being meted out to Black people across the globe. Yes. And of course, you know, the novel itself has been, as you argue, has been appropriated, especially elsewhere outside America, for various political and intellectual reasons. You say, for example, in South Africa, in your researches, especially at universities that have taught the novel, you have found that the responses, if one follows them according to the racial composition of the classroom have been diverse. Could you elaborate on that? Well, it's interesting that post-2000, and this is during Becky's period, the African Renaissance period, etc., etc., you have Kosazana Lamini Zuma giving a speech in which she references Ralph Ellison and references him in his critical work, Shadow and Act, in which she speaks about the solidarity of Black people being the oppression that they suffer. It's a convenient narrative to use, but it's not a particularly accurate one. And especially coming from a writer who didn't necessarily identify with African complaints or African ideas of injustice, etc., etc. I think Ellison saw himself as firmly an American writer. And in fact, he insisted on being called a Negro as opposed to Black American, because for him, the distinction was important. He didn't want to be diluted. He was American. In terms of diversity, I mean, over the years, what you see is the ways in which he's appropriated 
in quite, I don't want to call them manipulative, but he's appropriated to fit particular discourse. So the, the discourses change politically, not significantly, they shift. And Ellison seems to be very easily packaged into all of them. So you have someone who aligns him with Steve Biko, for example, which I imagine, you know, if you read closely enough, the politics don't align, but it's a convenient narrative. So we fit him into that. In terms of academic studies, Afrofuturism is something that has become quite prominent. Ellison has been appropriated into this discourse as well, that Invisible Man is such a, a clever text in that it's able to articulate a future history. So it's not just about the past, it's gesturing at something else. It's, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to box him in, which precisely opens him up to influence and resonance with everyone and everybody. Yes, I'm really interested in that point that you are making about how he has been appropriated for various causes. And I think here about Steve Biko himself, about Fanon. I was reading your article, I began to wonder when you were talking about the reception of Invisible Men, I began to wonder about reception theories claim that the reader half creates the text and that perhaps uh, appropriation is really rewriting if one followed Roland Barthes' argument about the death of the author. Would you say that there is a kennel of Ellison in Ellison's Invisible Man or it is Ellison's dead and long live the text? That's a difficult question, only because my tendency when I teach is to keep Ellison out the text. So yes, you read about Ellison. But is it possible to read the text without making reference to Ellison, the individual, the actual writer? Inevitably, students struggle with that because he is such an interesting character outside of the text. And what you get is a lot of intertextual references. The text in itself appears woke, but it is rather ironic, if not troubling, that it's being written by someone who is ostensibly not woke, Um, or at least in contemporary discourse, would not be considered woke. So even there, there's the, the tension of, you know, the author doesn't really match up to the text. We know the author isn't dead. This is a product of his thinking. They meld into each other, but we need to try and separate Ellison the man from Ellison the text. But inevitably, I mean, these are broader discussions that, you know, we have in the discipline. That particular question is is still up for debate. Yes. I'm glad that you, you know, you've problematized this idea of the author being dead. Now you talk about, and I think that it has been implied in our discussion, about Ellison's individualism, which was the subject of intense critical reflection on his writing, especially within America. The idea that Ellison was part of a tradition of American individualism and pragmatism, but that his individualism is not of a liberal kind, but of a relational kind. And I want to link this to what you say in your chapter about the relatedness of his text and in particular of his character. There's the individualism, which is relational rather than liberal. Would you say that in this sense, Ellison is part of an established American tradition of a kind of relational individualism? I would say so. And I would say this is probably why Ellison himself managed to 
endear himself would be considered part of the American canon. And not just, I'm sure you're aware, I mean, we talk about the American literary canon, but we also have subsets of that, which would be the African-American canon, the so-called Native American canon, etc., etc. But Ellison's text seems to have catapulted into the American canon. You know, you don't actually even put it into African-American. It is a text that is representative of the American situation as well as the American ideal. If you've read enough about Ellison and you read his writing very carefully, you definitely get the sense of someone who is writing at a particular level and is aspiring towards achieving a particular level. So he speaks quite honestly about his own influences and his influences would be your Ralph Waldo Emerson's, Mark Twain's, you know, considers them the fathers of American literature and the people to whose writing to whom he himself aspires, which of course gets him into trouble with the African-Americans. Yes. Yes, yes. I I mean, I'm just glad that you've mentioned these writers. Waldo Emerson, of course, you know, his own name, Ralph Waldo Ellison, yes, (laughs) links him to some name, other name, and to a tradition. And of course, what Ellison does is to challenge, you know, liberal individualism and to advocate a kind of existential individualism that seeks to connect, even though at many points it fails. Now, you you talk about those who have taught the novel in South Africa and, and of course, the questions that you asked them. What would you say is the appeal and relevance of Invisible Man for your own students? I think off the top of my head, I would say the most obvious appeal is a writer who seems interested in, in confronting the issue of race and black invisibility. But once they start to work through the text, start to think more critically about race relations and blackness in itself. Very many students have found it a very difficult text. And I think that is the appeal for them as well as as myself, that when we are journeying or, or walking this terrain of you know race relations and, and what it means to be and not be, I expect for it to be a difficult one where there are no easy solutions. There are no convenient truths. And this is what they tend to take out of it. They start to grapple with themselves, their own prejudices, their own inhibitions and hang-ups. It was interesting, for example, in a class of honor students, when reading the text and people relating it to Ellison's own anxieties about being black and being called out by the African-American community as an uncle Tom and a sellout, that students at that particular moment during the Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall movements, there were very many students who struggled with being able to articulate, as you say, a relational individuality in the sense that we are fighting primarily for the same cause, but I refuse to be boxed into a particular narrative and the repercussions thereof for taking that stand. Issues with regard to masculinity. Emerson was apparently somewhat homophobic, critics say. In a contemporary context, and you read that text, it's a very masculine text, very violent text. And for female students who read it, and not just the female students, it's a very disturbing text to read. It starts to, interestingly, either make you stronger in your own convictions or start to think very carefully about your own prejudices and your own biases. So in that respect, I think it's a fantastic text. 
Thank you for, for that response, because what I read in your argument is precisely that it is a text that has many and contradictory appeals for many and contradictory sections of the reading public, and newer ways of reading it, as you indicate, which foreground its, its homophobia, come to in some ways, contest older readings of the text through the prism of race. And I think that this is quite important. So its existentialism is male and undeniably male. It is male angst, if you wish, but in that way it is alienating. It is not a universal type of existentialism. It is not a universal crisis in one sense, but it is in another sense a universal crisis if seen through the prism of race. And now I want to also touch on the occasion about which this discussion could be seen to be, that is Anon Nampa's own existential predicament, having been imprisoned, his bail expiring on the 28th of May. And of course, prison and the condition in which he finds himself is an existential one. Perhaps there is no worse condition, or it is one of the worst existential conditions that one could imagine in modern society, would you say that Ellison was in a kind of metaphorical isolation of his own, or did he have any a community of intellectuals who thought the way he did about race, about identity, about the self. And I'm thinking here about someone like James Baldwin, for example, whose relation to black nationalism was in many ways complicated by his own homosexuality, but also about his own independence, intellectual independence. So what would you say is the extent of the existence existential condition which invisible men registered about blackness, about uh, sexuality, about uh, individualism. What I would take from it is the ways in which particular discourses or narratives can actually render people invisible. So even in discourses that promote universalism or promote racial solidarity, etc., etc., there is a danger of invisibilizing people and groups within it. The interesting thing, I mean, you could look at James Baldwin and um, Ralph Ellison as somewhat parallel peers in the sense that they would both be seen as having espoused a kind of intellectual cosmopolitanism or a cosmopolitan intellectualism, whichever way you want to look at it, with the idea that these are quite sophisticated individuals. And James Baldwin himself had no time for protest writing. He was interested in writing human stories and himself was also well-traveled, like Ralph Ellison spent time overseas, etc., etc. But having said that, Sigmund I actually have in front of me a special issue it's called a race issue of Oprah magazine. And this is following the Black Lives Matter movement, the killing of various African-American men and women. And I was reading this article and yet again, the sense of dichotomized positioning of these African-American authors comes up. So this is a, a Princeton University academic. And I'll just read very quickly. He says, I didn't read Baldwin seriously until graduate school. I was more interested in Rolf Ellison, whose books of essays, Shadow and Act, and Going to the Territory brimmed with philosophical and literary rigor, and offered a sophisticated treatment of the American race problem. I also could read Ellison's essays with my white classmates without having to manage their discomfort. 
Back then, I viewed Baldwin as an author who left the ground scorched. He told the truth, but anger dripped from every page. When I read The Fire Next Time, I couldn't reconcile his rage with his talk of love. It was too personal and required me to confront my own pain. In contrast, Ellison remained hidden behind his elegant words and powerful insights. His mask fit perfectly. And that for me just is an interesting way of of looking at, you know, both these very influential writers, the ways in which they relate and resonate across space, across time. I think for me, it suddenly struck me the notion of of racial performativity. As black writers, they are required to perform their particular positions on blackness, etc., etc., and what I would argue would be, you know, having discussed James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison, is that what you have in both characters would be an embodied blackness, which is far more interesting and far more complicated than a performative one. In the sense of, I don't need to stand in front of a podium and speak about black atrocity for it to register to you just how atrocious it is. My entire being should resonate for you how atrocious it is. And I think James Baldwin, for me, certainly much more than Ralph Ellison, absolutely laid himself out there for people to make sense of what it was to be Black in America. Yes. And uh, it is uh, quite an interesting uh, observation uh, that you make about James Baldwin. Uh, You know, his uh, vulnerability, in other words, his uh, readiness to, as you say, put himself out for criticism and for scrutiny. He was almost, if I may use the word, relaxed about his own his own identity, even if within black nationalism, in which masculinity is perhaps the dominant way of being, uh, in other words, to be a man is perhaps what is behind uh, black power, if you like, even though there were women. But the image of the man as the image of black power, despite the presence of Angela Davis and so on, is what uh, James Baldwin both critiqued by being uh, who he was, but also by what he said about it. And I recall, you know, his debate with Malcolm X, uh, in which, you know, Malcolm X was arguing about black masculinity and James Baldwin was saying, well, it's hard enough to be a human being. So I'm curious about this idea of humanism and race, you know, because as you know, the arguments, post-racial arguments, often invoke this idea of a common humanity, even if it has not been attained. What is your view of that? What kind of humanism would you say Baldwin and Ralph Ellison advocated, in particular Ralph Ellison in Invisible Man? I think I'd have to actually take this from you, Sikumbuzo, that the notion of a, a relational humanism in which one is able to see the connections, but also articulate the differentials and the specificities, because we can't lie. I mean, even in South African context, the specific experiences to particular races are different. And yet they are almost always relational in the sense that one can't make sense of the difference without connecting with the so-called other. And I think this is precisely what Baldwin and Ellison struggle with. You can't be black divorced from white. Structures just make that impossible. So ironically, even though themselves, you know, go through these processes of exile, 
I think those processes of exile actually gave them the space to contemplate and meditate on these existential issues. Yes, yes. I'm also thinking about this in terms of your researches about the teaching or the experiences of teaching Ralph Ellison in South Africa. And I'm thinking about the long tradition of protest and resistance literature, which was actually founded on humanism. In other words, the political unconscious of protest is humanism, the restoration of the human men and the dismantling of those categories as such as black, white, and so on, which limit the capacity of the human. I'm thinking here of Louis Ngozi's Mating Birds. I'm thinking here of going back to 1913. I'm thinking of Mrs. A.C. Dube's The Land Act. Africa, my native land, in which through the facility of romanticism, perhaps a a more African romanticism, uh, she laments the taking away of land and, of course, the suffering that it would bring about. So I'm trying to understand this type of humanism, which is not, you know, your blind universalist humanism, even though it's a call to a universal humanism, a kind of uh, human solidarity, if you like. Would you say that even in the individualism of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, there is that call for humanity, for human solidarity, even in those existential moments? Absolutely. I think that is fundamentally what Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is about. It is a call to recognizing the intricacies, the murkiness of what it means to be human. I think why it's such a difficult text, as I said before, is there's this suggestion that we need to get away from easy solutions and actually embrace confronting the difficulties of what it means. I think especially for me, when I think of the context in which I started teaching the text and the continuous calls for a decolonial higher education, that for me is what I continue to hope my students get out of it, that on the one hand, we make these easy calls, but are we prepared to do the hard work? Yes, yes. And uh, the hard work, of course, lies in what you call the minor share of Ellison's writing, that it is not the broad, loose sense of race, of identity, but a more, if you like, molecular idea of identity of the self and of race, you know, an atomic one as opposed to a generalized one. Hence, in Invisible Man, there are these problematic encounters that the Invisible Man has uh, from which he retreats, yes. Coming to a particular issue that you raise, uh, maybe, maybe one last question about, Aritha, what you say about one of the responses by a lecturer regarding the responses by black and white students. You say, the lecturer says, white students were enthralled, but she was also careful to highlight the particular congruence between the novel's concerns and the experience of many black South Africans. This thrall in which invisible men seem to have held these students, would that be a particular reason that these white students would have been enthralled by it? Which you do argue in the chapter But would you say that this type of response to the novel, especially in a classroom where different races uh, relate differently to it? I think that the responses obviously would shift over time. So depending on when this comment was made, I'm assuming this is 
just post-apartheid. There is a sense in which you have, and this continues actually even into the contemporary classroom, a sense in which white students seem quite, I think the word might be divorced from black realities. So to see through black characters' eyes, whiteness written on the page and also blackness written on the page. The sense that they're being invited into a a reality or world, of course, I mean fictional reality, but a world that they have themselves have not encountered. And what you'll find in my own research is that depending on the context, students being sheltered from particular texts, some of which included Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, and then it being conveniently appropriated at a particular moment in South Africans' political history. So again, this speaks to the complexity of this text that seems to be able to be appropriated politically here and appropriated politically there. And what does that appropriation say also about us? Yes. On that note and on that question, I thank you very much, Aretha. This was really, for me, this was really an exciting discussion. And uh, I taught Invisible Man, I think, for two years in 2018 and 2019. And, you know, reading your chapter opened up quite a number of avenues for me, which I never even considered. And so I came to this discussion with the enthusiasm of the student as well. I thank you for this discussion discussion. Well, well, if it's any consolation, I certainly consider myself a perpetual student. So when I walk in the class with my students, I'm eager to learn from them what they think. Yeah, and I think if we stop being students, then we might as well stop researching. So thank you very much. And now we will pay tribute to the empty chair for this episode, poet and human rights lawyer from Thailand, Anon Nampa. We've heard that his bail is due to expire on 28 May 2022. So we remain in solidarity with him. So I would ask you, Aretha, to read or to share your message for Anon Nampa. In the spirit of this conversation, my tribute will actually come from Ralph Ellison himself. And this is a lecture he gave called On Initiation Rights and Power. I would think that implicitly the novel protests. It protests the agonies of growing up. It protests the problems of finding a way into a complex, intricately structured society in a way which would allow this particular man to behave in a manly way and which allow him to seize some instrumentalities of political power. That is where the protest is on one level. On another level, the protest lies in my trying to make a story out of these elements without falling into the cliches which have marked and marred most fiction about American Negroes. That is, to write literature instead of political protest. Beyond this, I would say simply that in the very act of trying to create something, there is implicit protest against the way things are. A protest against man's vulnerability before the larger forces of society and the universe. I think that the novelist's task is to present the human, to make it eloquent and to provide some sense of transcendence over the given. That is, to make his protest meaningful, significant and eloquent of human value. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that touching tribute. And I'm glad that you've chosen something from Ralph Ellison. 
And uh, now I'm going to read mine. And mine comes from a poem that was written by the South African poet Mongani Wali Serote on the occasion of the banning of another South African poet, Don Matera. Matera was banned by the South African apartheid government between 1973 and 1982, which meant that he was not permitted to appear or speak at public functions and was restricted to certain places. And Mongani Walliserata wrote a poem called For Don M. Band. It reads, it is a dry white season. Dark leaves don't last. Their brief lives dry out. And with a broken heart, they die down gently headed for the earth not even bleeding. It is a dry white season, brother. Only the trees know the pain as they stand still erect, dry like steel, their branches dry like wire. Indeed, it is a dry white season, but seasons come to pass. And this is my tribute to Anon Namper and hoping that for him as well, this season will come to pass. Thank you very much, Sigumbuzo. Thank you, Aretha. Thank you. Thank you to Aretha Piri and Sikumbuzum Gadi for your insights and virtuosity. Join us again next week for another episode of Season 4 of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This episode was produced by Andre Burnett with the assistance of David Versteich. Thanks to our podcast project executive producer, Lara Buxbaum, to the Penn South Africa board members, Kate Hyman, Yawande Omatoza, and the whole of the board of Penn SA, and especially to our interns. And thanks too to Amy Bell Malazzi and Jahan Jones Radgarski for their support. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rises across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversations and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and so the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>